Do you have some money in your bank account? Good. That's a good place to start. Uh, If not, (laughs) don't worry about today's show. Just skip to a different show. But if you do have money in your bank account uh, or some type of account, are you aware that just about every day that money is losing value? It's becoming worth systematically less and less. This we like to call inflation, and it's a careful design of our currency. In fact, the controllers of our currency supply, the Federal Reserve Board, uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing in Washington right now that they can't create as much inflation as they've been working to create. But inflation calls for a defensive plan. And today we're going to talk about how do you protect your wealth from the effects of inflation in retirement? And even more importantly, if you are an early retiree, how do you protect your wealth from the effects of inflation over a very long period of time? Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. Today, we talk inflation with a man named a rebel spy, or Arabelspi. Well, that's actually not his name. His name is Joe, and he's an awesome guy. And even if you don't care about inflation, make sure you stay listening to this interview to hear how a couple of teachers gained financial independence on a teacher's salary by the age of 30. Perhaps for some of you, that might be uh, even more interesting than the inflation conversation. Uh, I was able to coax a little bit of information out of Joe about his story. He didn't want to talk about it too much, but I coaxed just a little bit out of him about how he and his wife, starting with nothing, uh, both of them working as government school teachers, have been able to save their way to financial independence by the time that they were 30 years old. And you're going to hear a little bit of that story. Joe has been on the on the show uh, a couple of times previously. Uh, he is well known online under the username a rebel spy, uh, or uh, if you did what I did and many others do, Arabelspi <laughs> is how I thought of him as years. But you've seen him. He uh, was a, mon- is a he is a moderator in the uh, popular Mr. Money Mustache online forums, uh, and you'll see his screen name splashed across the internet in the uh, in the uh, uh, the personal finance space. But one of the things that I en- have enjoyed with conversations with Joe is Joe is not promoting anything. He's not. Uh, he doesn't even have a website. He's not particularly trying to get anybody to do anything. He's just one of those quiet guys who's sitting around working on his own plan, systematically building his financial independence and uh, building it for himself and his family, studying his way through. And he's very knowledgeable about various aspects of finance, as as you may have heard if you've heard previous episodes with him. Uh, he's just a normal guy who's a knowledgeable guy and is extensive Involvement in online forums has led to his facing just about all the different questions that relate to finance. And that's why I brought him on for this FAQ series of what are the most frequently asked questions of early retirement. Today, we talk about inflation. How do you protect your wealth against the damaging effects of inflation? This is of special interest to Joe because he's 30 years old and he and his wife have uh, quit their jobs and they are currently traveling around the world expecting never to return to the world of paid employment again unless they choose that that's something that they want to do. Uh, Well, inflation is a little different if you're 30 years old versus if you're 70 years old. It takes a little bit of a different plan, and you're going to hear that during the course of today's interview. 
This interview is not a carefully scripted, put-together presentation where he or I are trying to convince you to do something. This is more like the kind of conversation you might hear if Joe and I had been sitting down in person uh, sharing a cold drink some evening somewhere uh, together, and we were sitting around the table talking about financial topics. That's more the the ebb and flow of this conversation. So if you enjoy that type of, of interaction, you'll enjoy today's interview. Before I play the interview, though, I'd like to just thank our sponsors for today. Sponsor of the day number one is SoFi, the social finance uh, corporation uh, who specialize in helping you refinance your student loans. One of the things that we always want to be working for is minimizing cost in all area of our life. And one very important way to do that is to minimize cost on interest rates. If you have debt in your life, all things being equal, the lower you can get the interest rates, uh, the better because you'll save money and there'll be less money out of your pocket. Now, don't think for an instant that lowering interest rates is somehow going to magically save you from a debt situation. It's not. But if you're working on paying off a debt or if you've chosen to deploy your money into other investments that are growing at a rate of uh, interest higher than your debt, uh, then go ahead and try to lower your debt costs as much as possible. And one way that you can do that is to refinance your student loans. SoFi specializes in student loan refinance. They have rates that are substantially lower than most other sources. If you'd like the information on that, please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. They have a very quick, very simple online application process where they'll give you a very quick answer, letting you know if you qualify for refinance with their terms and if so, what the rates will be. If you use my tracking link, you will get a $200 bonus uh, credited to you, $200 bonus uh, for using my special tracking link. The way you do that, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash S-O-F-I, SOFI, uh, S-O-F-I, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SOFI, and uh, apply online. It's a great modern process, and see if you can save some money on your student loans. Sponsor of the day number two today is Patrick Snow. Patrick is my personal publishing coach. And as we begin the year in 2016, if you've never thought about – if you've ever thought about writing a book, why don't you follow through and actually make it happen? It's a New Year's resolution for many people and what happens is we often try to do things over and over and over by ourselves. Well – I don't know about you, but personally, I believe in hiring the best advisors and consultants that I can find. And that was uh, the process with my hiring Patrick Snow to work with me as my publishing coach. Patrick has helped me lay out a plan for the book. He's helped me with uh, some of his templates. I'm not using some of his templates because I've already had some other ideas, but he sent me his templates and things that would help me uh, just create the book, even if I wasn't sure of all the ideas. Uh, to actually create and publish a book. And it's probably one of the best marketing tools that you could have for your personal brand, for your personal business, uh, et cetera. So connect with Patrick. Find out more information on him at thepublishingdoctor.com. Uh, you can find uh, some interviews with him and some details on all of his different packages and services. If you're remotely interested, reach out to him for a complimentary consultation. He'll give you a 30 to 60 minute complimentary consultation, give you some nuggets of advice on what you should do, whether or not you choose to hire him. That's up to you. Uh, but check out his information at thepublishingdoctor.com. Let him know I sent you. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview with Joe. Joe, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. Thanks, Joshua. Glad to be back. Always enjoy chatting with you. <laughs> I was looking through the archives, and the last time you were on the show was episode 95. So I'm not sure if it's about a year or almost a year, but it's been quite a while. And I'm excited to have you back on to talk about some of these early retirement frequently asked questions. But before we get into the question of the day, which is we're going to focus primarily on how to handle inflation in your retirement planning – 
a few things have changed since the last time we talked. Where are you? Where, where are you right now in the world? Yeah, um, right now I am in uh, Zagreb, Croatia, staying in a uh, an apartment we have rented on Airbnb for a couple weeks. Um, yeah, since since last year, my wife and I actually decided to pull the plug on working, and uh, we quit our jobs in June, um, both teachers, and now we are kind of uh, full traveling uh, the world and, uh, checking, checking out some places, seeing what there's to see. So she turned, let's see, 67 and you just turned 68, right? To be able to retire as a teacher. (laughs) Right. Um, no, we, uh, I actually retired right before my 30th birthday and, and, uh, so now I, now I'm 30, but I, I managed to squeak it in right at, right at 29, um, about a week before I turned 30. And then, uh, my wife's a year younger. She's 29 right now. No, so then obviously your dad died and left you a couple million bucks, and you used that to retire on it. That's that's obviously the what happened, right? No, thankfully both of my parents are still in great health. Um, I I uh, we didn't get any inheritances or win any lotteries. We we had a lot of uh, a lot of fortunate things um, happen in terms of we were both uh, raised in loving households that taught us the importance of education and learning, reading. Um, and, and then we just, uh, were very frugal and, and invested a lot and, and put an extra effort and, um, yeah, managed to, uh, to pull it off. So I know that obviously I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here with my questions, but it is a remarkable story. It's not a common, even though it seems like there have been a couple people on the show in past episodes it's, who are teachers who've been uh, built their way to financial independence. It's not a common idea that people say, I'm going to go into the profession of teaching and use that to get rich so I can retire early. Uh, at what point in time did you guys get hold of this idea of early retirement? Um. That's a good question, and it's it's been it was probably right around when when we started working. We graduated in uh, college in two thousand seven, and um, kind of right as stuff was peaking, right before the recession. And we, uh, I wasn't planning on on becoming a teacher. Um, it was something I signed up for two years for with uh, Teach for America to try and help. Uh, close the achievement gap in, in lower income communities and, um, just fell in love with teaching, just enjoyed so much, uh, going to school every day and, and, and working with these kids. And, um, but I knew that, you know, doing that wasn't necessarily something I wanted to do my entire life. Um, and, um, I think right around that time we, we had already been reading personal finance blogs, like get rich slowly back in 2006. I think we first stumbled on that. And then, um, Jacob Lund Fisker's early retirement extreme in 2007. And so kind of all, all, all along had some of these influences and, and just started investing and saving and, and buying rental properties and, um, yeah, kind of slowly and steadily making our way towards that. So it is exciting. Congratulations. You've been to – you're in Croatia now. And where have you been so far and where are you heading? And then we'll get to the meat of our conversation today. <laughs> um, we we started off um, it, doing a, uh, a religious pilgrimage um, called El Camino de Santiago in Spain. It's it's a uh, about a 500-mile walk um, across 
northern Spain, and there's all these different routes to get to um, the city of Santiago. Um, but it's this pilgrimage that's been going on for over a thousand years that um, people will walk this, and um, at the end you get this certificate of completion, a Compostela from the Catholic Church. And neither of us are particularly religious, but it's kind of people of all walks of life do it nowadays um, for whatever spiritual or physical or whatever reasons they have. And um, it took us 35 days to walk. Um, and it was, uh, we were not prepared. It was a lot harder than, <laughs> than uh, we thought it would be. There's, you know, we read some books about it and there's a movie called the way with Martin Sheen that came out in 2010 about this walk. And um, most of them kind of, they don't mention how difficult it might be. Uh, I think it has a survivorship bias in that all the people who go there and, and walk for three days and then stop walking and quit, they don't tell their <laughs> stories, right? And so anyone who's completed it and writes a book about it obviously enjoyed it. Um, but anyway, so we, we did that. We walked uh, across northern Spain for uh, 500 miles for a little over a month, and then we... Um, went to Portugal for about 10 days, and then we went to Germany for about two weeks, and then we went up to London for about a week, and down to uh, Marrakesh, Morocco for about two weeks, and now we've been over in Croatia for Split and now Zagreb. Um, and then we're going over to Istanbul. Um, my wife is currently pregnant and due January 31st. Congratulations, so, dude. I didn't know that. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So we uh, that was kind of our plan all along was to retire and then, you know, start raising kids so that we can be full-time parents. Um, so we're going to be having the baby in Istanbul. We're going there in a week or two, and we'll be settling down there for three months, having the kid, and uh, and then move on from there. That's exciting. Awesome. So let's get to the major question that we're here to talk about today. I wanted to, it's been a while and you're a friend of the show and I wanted to have that personal update because I think it's really inspiring. It's, I definitely, you know, we're the same age. I I don't know, maybe I'm a year ahead of you or or half a year ahead of you, but I sometimes wish back, (laughs) I wish in 2007 when I graduated from college, I had, uh, I wish I'd found early retirement extreme then (laughs) instead of, (laughs) I don't know, 2012 or something like that. When I finally found it, I would, I would be in, in your position. But unfortunately, I have some money in IRAs and Roth IRAs, and I had some good times because I saved my 10 or 15%, Joe. Yeah. So well, you were ahead of most people. So. I was ahead of most people, but I feel like I got sold the short end of the stick by uh, the financial planning profession because I did what they said, and I'm 30, and I'm not rich. <laughs> so yeah. now I'm, I'm rich in many things and richer than most, but, uh, but still have a long way to go toward financial independence. So let's talk about inflation. And inflation is one of those words that brings fear into the heart of most traditional retirees. And it's one of those things that, as a financial advisor, we spend a lot of time talking to people about how to protect themselves from inflation, how to plan for it. You are basically screwed because you're 30 (laughs) and you've got 70 years to live off of this nest egg. Do you wake up with cold sweats in the middle of the night thinking about and worrying about the inflation of the currency and the fact that you're going to be broke in the future? <laughs> um, not exactly. I, I do worry about it. I, I think that inflation is the number one enemy of the early retiree. I think um, because like you said, I've got decades and decades for the purchasing power of my money to just erode. Um, 
So while I'm not worried about it, I, I definitely think it's something that is important to talk about and, and plan for. How do you – well, let's start with talking about what is inflation. What are the major aspects of inflation that you consider and how they're going to affect your life? Okay, so inflation just in general is just the idea that things get more expensive over time. Um, and uh, prices tend to increase and the value of your money goes down. And we see this example whenever we look at anything from you know more than a few decades ago, something from the 50s where someone goes in to get a, a soda bottle for five cents or um, – or you know, the, you look at the median house price and it was five thousand dollars. My wife and I were watching It's a Wonderful Life yesterday because now it's Christmas time. We can watch all those fun movies and and George Bailey in there goes, you know how long it takes a working man to save up five thousand dollars? Because he's talking <laughs> to Mister Potter. And right now, I think the poverty line, you know, is somewhere around twenty thousand dollars, four times that. So you look at um, examples like this and and you see that money buys less things over time. And, and there's a number of reasons why, but that's just generally the idea of what inflation is. And so if you are an early retiree and you go, okay, I, I want to buy things, but they get more expensive over time, obviously you're not working anymore. Your, your salary is not going to increase. So you're going to have to do other things to uh, make up for that, to make sure that your purchasing power doesn't erode via growing your portfolio in your retirement. What kind of things? Um, so there's a few different ways to protect yourself. Um, in, in a word, uh, or I guess in two words, asset allocation. Um, looking at what sort of things am I invested in and how, how can I make sure those things themselves keep up with inflation? So specifically, um, there's uh, types of investments called TIPS. They're uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities and I-bonds, and those are both very similar things. Um, we probably don't need to go into the differences then, but they're basically like a, uh, a savings bond from the government that adjusts with inflation. So you get paid out every six months. Twice a year, you get paid um, interest on it, and that interest – increases with inflation. It's pegged to an inflation index. And as, um, as, interest, er, as inflation happens and the price of goods rises, your interest payment rises, and also the principle of that bond itself rises. So um, it's kind of, it, it, it's not worth any more at the end um, unless you're getting a rate plus inflation. Um, but it, it, it holds its value, if that makes sense. But you're not trying to live off of the income, you know, as a 30-year-old early retiree, you're not trying to live off the income from, from a tips portfolio, are you? No, I'm not, personally. Um, that's one asset I think should be in. Right. Um, if you're making kind of a balanced portfolio, that's one asset I think every early retiree should consider. I don't think <laughs> – I think if you saved up and put your whole nest egg into tips – that's certainly one way to handle deflation. I think you open yourself up to other potential problems like deflation. Um, you might be kind of overprotecting yourself. And then the other downside is they don't have a lot of growth potential, meaning you're probably going to have to work a lot longer and build a lot larger nest egg to be able to survive on 
um, the returns from those tips. So how are you planning for inflation? Uh, so me personally, we have a number of rental properties. So um, real estate is another great inflation hedge um, simply because the value of the land will tend to go up with inflation uh, as well as the actual whatever improvements are on the land because like we, like I mentioned earlier, that $5,000 house may be you know, 100000 200000 now um, because – the goods themselves, the like materials, the wood, the nails, the shingles, whatever the house is built of goes up with inflation. So any new person wanting to buy a house, say a young couple buying a new house, if a new house had to be built for them, then all those goods that are used to build it would cost more to buy. And all the labor of the people building it also, their wages have gone up over time, so their labor costs more. So the house itself costs a lot more to build. So then your house that's older, it may not sell for the same as a new house, but it's still going to rise as those new home prices rise. Um, so the the underlying value of that hard asset rises with inflation. And then also any income it produces. Our rents, you know, we can increase the rents on our tenants as sort of um, wages rise. And so if if our tenants um, get a raise at work, a cost of living raise because they're um, because of inflation, then we can raise their rents, and now we just got a cost of living raise. I think real estate is is definitely really powerful for this, and the reason is real estate is always going to be tied. The value of real estate is always going to be tied to the actual value in the local economy, which is going to be driven by the local uh, jobs, the local wages the local things to buy and sell like it's all going to be driven by what's actually happening in the economy and if you're living on the por- on the rental income from a portfolio uh, excuse me if you're living off of off of the income from a rental portfolio then that rental income it may grow or it may shrink as you have to adjust rents to stay in line with the local markets but the value of that house because it's a tangible good that provide that's providing a commodity a place to live the value of that house is going to stay consistent with whatever the local market is doing. And so if you buy right, at the very least, your income can adjust and fluctuate as you adjust your rents, assuming your houses are in good shape and all that. Your income can adjust with the local economic environment. Now, if you are uh, investing in a rental portfolio in Detroit, that might mean over time your standard of living is going to decrease because the local economy is fallen apart. Uh, or if you are doing it in San Francisco, it might have increased over the last you know number of years as the economy has improved, but it's directly tied to the local economy, which is where you're going to be buying and selling, which is where you're going to be living and, and, and doing business. So it is a powerful inflation hedge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another popular one, uh, real estate itself, specifically rental real estate, uh, a lot of retirees kind of shy away from because they don't want to work. That's why they retired. And, and it can be seen as, as a lot of work. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that as I haven't been in the same country as my rental properties for the last five months and everything's running along just fine. But, um, how have have you set that up to be able to do that? Um, so, uh, I have a number of properties in, in a few different States and the ones outside of where I was living, I already had a property manager um, so that's, they take care of everything and email me updates. Um, and then my local properties, I was managing myself. Um, I have a, a number of property managers I know in town that, um, I can turn the properties over to 
when necessary. Right now, I'm still managing them from afar because my management, I don't, I don't ever do any work on the properties. I always hire people. So I have a number of handymen and uh, different companies that I've worked with, electricians and plumbing companies and things like that, AC. Um, and so if there's a problem, the tenants text me, oh, hey, the, the AC is not working. And then I text my handyman and say, hey, can you go over to this property? Here's the tenant's phone number. And uh, you know, it takes me about two minutes in a text message to, to handle any, any of those sort of issues. So um, that won't work necessarily while there's turnover when, when the tenants move out. So that's why I'm going to kind of turn the properties over one by one as a tenant moves out, hand it over to a property manager, and they can – you know, get it fixed up, re-rented, and, and take over at that point. That's great. And also, you get to benefit from earning your money in the United States and spending your money in Eastern Europe, where hopefully there's a good uh, a good geo-arbitrage opportunity for the value of your dollars. Yeah, um, that's definitely an advantage, uh, potentially, at the moment. It's it's I kind of view that as, I don't know what it's going to do in the future. I, I can't necessarily predict that other dollars will rise or fall faster than the U.S. dollar, so I'm not counting on being able to continue to do stuff cheap overseas. But for now, when there's um, there are definitely some really nice places. Um, one place that's been on our list for a while is Chiang Mai, Thailand, and and it seems like everybody loves it and it's cheap. And um, so, yeah, it's, that's definitely one thing we're we're excited about getting to take advantage of for now. Let's talk about personalized rates of inflation versus general uh, economy-wide rates of inflation. First, talk about how the rate of inflation is calculated in the general economy and then how you would look at your own life and calculate your own rate of inflation. Okay. Um, so the, the way it's generally calculated uh, for the economy is um, using something called the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, where the government has – uh, what they call a basket of goods. Basically, they have, if you just picture a list of different items and it has on it different food, like it might have um, chicken and apples and, uh, you know, a pound of apples and and it has stuff like gasoline and clothes and cars. And so it's got all these different items that people buy. And it's kind of a monthly running update of here's what it would cost to buy these things. And then the next month they check in with all these different markets and see and and go, okay, here's what it costs now. And here's what it costs now. And slowly over time, you see, okay, those prices on these things are rising. Well, that's then what we'll call the inflation rate. The percent that those goods rose is in that consumer price index. That's how much inflation is. Um, And one of the biggest um, kind of myths or, or maybe misnomers I see in early retirement communities. And I've, I've seen over the last decade when people go and post online and, and talk about inflation is they, they think that they can try and beat inflation by doing certain things. Their, their own, they want to keep their own personal inflation rate lower and say, well, the CPI is maybe 3%, but I think I can experience less inflation. And, um, and they try and argue for why they may not see that much inflation. So let me put forward an argument, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on why I don't think that's the case. Okay, go ahead. Um, so generally what people say is, well, my inflation rate's going to be lower because I don't buy cars. I have a bicycle, and I don't buy gasoline. And, I, and so they say, well, all those 
items on the consumer price index, I don't buy a bunch of those, so I'm not going to experience that same inflation. Um, and that's generally their argument. But the reason why I don't buy that is because even if you don't buy those particular items, whatever items you do buy should still increase via the rate of inflation, right? Yeah. So I think this argument has pros and cons. And what can happen is somebody could be too, a little bit too starry-eyed. Somebody who's new to the world of early retirement and says, well, I'm just going to live like Jacob Lundfisker lives. And I'm, he's, you know, he's my guru. Um, we love you, Jacob, but sorry, you have to be the guru. <laughs> but I'm going to live like Jacob lives and I'm just not going to buy anything. I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to fix my own bike. Uh, I'm going to go out and, and, and just find these things everywhere. And I think that certainly somebody who, somebody like Jacob or somebody like you who's, who's resourceful and who's able to uh, demonstrate just their ability to, uh, to find ways to accomplish things that don't just involve plopping down your credit card for retail prices. There's always going to be a way to control for prices. Um, but there are well, going to be – go, go ahead. And that I actually disagree with that. So I think, I think it's irrelevant how handy you are. And how much you're fixing yourself because theoretically you should already be calculating that in your spending to start out with. So let's say, for example, you, you do live, uh, you know, you homestead and you've got this farm and you raise most of your own food um, and you repair everything yourself and you've got your expenses down to $5,000 annually. And that, that's, you know, a, a couple thousand bucks for property taxes and health insurance and, um, I don't know. And then some staples that you can't buy, some stuff that you just can't make yourself that you do have to buy. So your bike breaks and you repair it free. Great. You, you never had in your original $5,000 any budget to actually repair it. But let's say you did have, I don't know, a, a bike tube in there in that $5,000. Well, that is still going to inflate with inflation. I mean, whatever, whatever you were calculating in that $5,000, even if you're like, I'll fix everything myself so my cost is zero, okay, so, so your costs of, let's say you're living a $20,000 lifestyle or, or $40,000 lifestyle, and it's only costing you $5,000 because you insource everything yourself, well, but whatever was of that $5,000, you still need to worry about inflation. So if you have income coming in that covers that $5,000, it still needs to be protected from inflation, does that make sense? Yeah, so I'll, I'll buy that argument, but I'll just say that the difference comes in where, where the discussion comes in is when we're talking about it within the context of people who are knowledgeable and interested in early retirement, who are living a frugal lifestyle, who are taking control over their expenses. Your argument is correct. When comparing an early retirement lifestyle to a generalized, uh, I just say mainstream lifestyle, that's where the difference comes in because – so, example, uh, housing. What are the inflation costs that are associated with housing? Well, once you purchase a property to live in, uh, if you have a fixed rate mortgage and a fixed, excuse me, and a fixed mortgage payment, you have a fixed rate mortgage and a fixed mortgage payment. That mortgage payment is not going to be affected by the inflation rate unless you sell it, but your property taxes are. So once you start to get in a little bit of control of setting up your lifestyle, you can control the inflation rate and you can transition some of the things that are going to be affected by inflation to things that aren't. And, okay. and so what I, the way I think about it 
is I think, how can I go through and look at every place that you connect with the, with the mainstream economy, there's going to be an inflation rate associated with that because costs are continually going up. The currency is continually debasing. Uh, that is the way that our monetary system is structured. And until it's reset and adjusted uh, at some point in coming decades, uh, then it's going to continue to be the same. But you can decouple from the mainstream uh, mainstream. Uh, uh, markets in some aspects of your life, and as long as you stay decoupled from them. So, for example, your your inflation risk is frozen on your house until you got to go and buy another one, uh, and then once you get back into that market, that's where you start to experience the effects again. I I agree with you on on the mortgage, and and that's actually one of the best inflation hedges you can have is a fixed rate mortgage. Um, and I, I think for that reason, every early retiree should have a long-term low fixed mortgage. And I know that's going to sound crazy to a lot of people because they want the paid-off house and the security that comes with it. But um, I think you're you're risking a lot more inflation when you don't have that mortgage. Um, that basically, if you instead had that money invested in something that's protected against inflation – Yes, your budget would be higher, but it, that part of the budget wouldn't be rising with inflation. Yeah, and just to, just to give just to give an example, and then you can continue. Um, I would rather have if I living in a two hundred thousand dollar house. I'd rather have as close to a two hundred thousand dollar fixed rate mortgage uh, on my house that I can have, and then have a paid off rental property, uh, and have the rental income from the paid off rental property. Because the rental income from the rental property, I can adjust with the local prevailing inflation rate, but then I can take advantage of the fixed rate mortgage on my personal on my personal house. Would you agree? And, and feel free to continue your point. Um. Yes, but I would say go ahead and have a <laughs> fixed rate mortgage on that rental property. Right. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, I, um, right. But so, but in theory, I think the mortgage is the only example I can think of off the top of my head that that is like that because you're essentially borrowing against a dollar at it's it's at a fixed rate, so any sort of inflation won't affect you. Um, it won't affect that payment. Um, but if we if we presume a paid off house to make it easier, I think every other expense that you have is going to rise with inflation, whether that's property taxes, health care, um, home insurance, and and whatever food, whatever. All of those things are going to rise. So so people's arguments of well, I won't buy, you know, X Y Z thing. I don't buy a car. Okay. But you didn't have that in your budget to begin with, so that doesn't affect the inflation rate on all the other items. Right, right. So I come back to uh, it's basically the only way to escape inflation is if you can decouple from the market. And the point so, – so that's where you could escape some of the effects of inflation if you go ahead and purchase the solar panels that you'll need for your roof to generate your electricity – you go ahead and set up your water catchment system so you don't have to buy water from the grid, et cetera. Well, now you're decoupling and you can freeze the costs. And so as the general economy is getting more expensive, costs are rising, the local utility company is supporting all of their pensions, you don't have to deal with that because you've just said, okay, 20000 bucks here, I'm buying these panels or whatever the, the equivalent is in your area, and now you've frozen that cost. But your point is that any, any the, the budget that you're living prior to – retirement, it's going to be the same as the budget you're living after retirement. And that right. budget is being affected by inflation. Right. So if you say, okay, I, I, get, I got my solar panels and now I put in my, my 
electricity cost is zero because the solar panels generate everything I need, then that's not a line item in my budget anymore. But whatever items are in my budget are still going to increase and you still have to think about inflation. So when people people talk about like, okay, um, or let's take another example. Let's say you stockpiled food. Let's say they say, I'm worried about the, the price of food, so I'm going to stockpile all these canned goods. Okay, you've then protected yourself from inflation on the price of those foods. But what I would argue is you're doing it suboptimally by what you're doing is you're losing out on the opportunity cost of that money that you purchased it with. And so if you stockpile food, you're basically presuming food is going to inflate faster than whatever investment I would put that money into. That's the only way you would come out ahead. Right. So I would so I would actually hold to this perspective and here's why. So so far we've been talking about uh, a normal inflation rate. So normal inflation rate usually we plan on say 3 or 4%. Uh but there have been periods in history in which economies go through abnormal periods of inflation. So you can go through a period of deflation, extremely unlikely in the U.S. economy, but you could in theory go through a period of deflation. You could go through mass inflation, um, the term that I use, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent uh, per year for a period of years. Uh, and in theory, you could get to the point of hyperinflation where you get, you know, dozens of percent or in excess of 100 percent of annual inflation. It's happened in some places in the world. I think it's very unlikely to happen in the United States uh, in the United States. Uh, but it's it's in theory at least possible. I look at uh, a period, and, and what I would what I expect as a possibility, and perhaps even a probability, is that at some point in time we'll go through periods of short term mass inflation. So back to the you know the idea of what happened in the 70s or where you're talking about inflation 10 15 20% per year for a couple of years as you deal with recession and, and deal with working your way through the economic cycles so those short term hedges make a big difference and some and if you look at each line item on the budget so food would be heavily subjected to major changes in inflation gas purchases would be heavily subjected to major changes in inflation but your electricity costs the utility companies are not going to be able to raise their electricity costs on a month by month basis to deal, to deal with a period of mass inflation so i think if you expand the mindset and open up the potential economic situations that you're planning for from beyond just a standard 3 to 4 to 5% annual um, increase in the consumer price index, now all of a sudden you do open up some ways that you can plan. What say you? I hear the, I hear the sighs coming in of the disagreement <laughs> welling up, so this will be fun. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, actually I 100% agree. Um, I, and, and inflation – so I just wanted to start with kind of the base level of inflation um, – because I think that's what we're kind of the environment we've been in recently and maybe for the last um, decade and a half, two decades, um, we've had relatively low inflation, especially over the last five years. It's been close to zero. It's it's not e- it's not even close to the three percent. But right. so I, I wanted to start with kind of that basic like this is what inflation does sort of scenario. But but I'm much more worried about what you mentioned. First, though, before we switch over to those other crazy inflation scenarios, I, let me read a quote to you from um, uh Todd Tresseter's website, the the financial mentor. I um, okay. I think you had him on. You yes. interviewed him before in the past because mm-hmm. um, he just he says 
I was looking for numbers around inflation, and he just says this example so much better than I could. So I'm just going to read just a paragraph here. Um, he said, a couple retiring in their 40s with at least one partner making it to their 90s can expect their purchasing power at 4.5% average inflation to get cut in half three times during their retirement. A dollar today would be worth little more than a dime when you're infirm and dependent. That's a very big deal. If you think this example is far-fetched and can't apply to you, then think again. According to Charles Ellis in Winning the Losers Game, $100 of goods in 1960 would have cost 500 in 1995. That's a 4.8 annual compound inflation rate that destroyed 80% of your purchasing power. So, I mean, this is, this is what we've seen in the U.S. over, you know, maybe not over the last five years or over the last 10 years. Um, I, but I'm always cautious when people say, oh, well, this is the new normal. This is, it's different this time. And so while we've seen some lower inflation rates, I think we very well could go back to an average of more like four to 5%. And if you're an early retiree, a few decades later, your purchasing power has been cut in half and cut in half and cut in half. Um, It's worrisome. Um, But going back to your point, um, and the 70s, that's really what worries me is is not so much this mundane inflation that's really not that mundane, be, just because of compounding. And and we all always look at examples of, of man, you invest this much and, and you do this for this number of years and, and in 50 years you're a jillionaire. And, and we all look at compounding and it's amazing and it's great um, when it's working for you. But when it's working against you, that that kind of you know, double digit inflation in the seventies, eighties, and, and you get that multiple years in a row to where those, that double digit inflation builds on itself and builds on itself. Cause it's compounding. Um, it, it's really scary. It, it, it very quickly makes, um, makes the value of your dollar a lot less. Oh yeah. Hugely. Um, so going back to, we kind of started talking about some, some ideas to protect yourself. So one would be tips, um, or I bonds. Another one is, is real estate, um, raising your rents as, as, you know, people as wages increase and, and they get cost of living raises and stuff like that. Um, another kind of very popular one, I, I feel like the one you hear about most is gold. Um, and gold typically is not a great investment, but it is viewed as an inflation hedge. And, um, it, it's one of the four main cornerstones of the permanent for- portfolio, which is trying to protect against a number of different downside scenarios, um, including inflation and deflation and, and all the different environments. And a quarter of the permanent portfolio is kept in gold to, to help to help hedge against inflation. Um, so that's another another good one for people to consider when they're looking at their asset allocation of of how can I help protect myself? Do you have comments or perspective on the importance of investing in gold from your perspective? Um, I think I'm, I'm not personally a fan of investing in gold because it's an unproductive asset. Um, uh, there's a, a Warren Buffett quote. Anyone listening can Google that basically he talks about um, all the amount of gold that's been mined fits in this like, 90 by 90 cube inside like a baseball, like, uh, what's the word? Not the outfield, the infield of, of the baseball stadium. And, um, it's worth, you know, X amount of dollars versus, and then he lists like Chevron and all these oil company, all these different companies that are generating billions of dollars in profits. And he's like, and they're worth about the same. I know which one I'd rather own. 
Right. And um, so I don't like the idea of owning it as an investment. I don't really like the idea of owning it while you are working, while you are accumulating, because theoretically, if inflation happens while you are still working, hopefully your your wages should rise with inflation. And that's not always the case. Um, but eventually they have to, because if things get too out of whack where people can't afford food, then you have riots in the street. I just I don't see that happening in America. So I do think wages, even if they may lag inflation somewhat, they'll kind of tend to catch up. So um, you, you, that's your inflation hedge while you're working is your job. And, um, and so, but I do see the value of having inflation hedges in retirement. And so if someone says, yeah, gold is the one I've decided on for these particular reasons, I'm okay with that. It's, let me, let me read you the, uh, the Warren Buffett quote. Um, yeah, please. So I asked the duck, and the duck says, uh, here's the quote. I will say this about gold. If you took all the gold in the world, it would roughly make a cube 67 feet on a side. Now, for that same cube of gold, it would be worth at today's market prices about $7 trillion. That's probably about a third of the value of all the stocks in the United States. For $7 trillion, you could have all the farmland in the United States. You could have about seven Exxon Mobiles, and you could have a trillion dollars of walking around money. And if you offered me the choice of looking at some 67-foot cube of gold and looking at it all day, and you know me touching it and fondling it occasionally, call me crazy, but I'll take the farmland and the Exxon Mobiles. Uh, now, that's, that's, uh, the version, that's the first version that popped up. There are other quotes where it talks about the putting in a swimming pool and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how I think about gold, and there's a lot of argument and debate about this, and I haven't presented shows on the different discussions, so I'll just talk from me personally without trying to give all the different sides of the, of the – the stage. If I had the money to simply retire on dividends from ExxonMobil stock, th- I would rather do that any day than have gold. And so, because if you can own companies, if you can own great companies, and again, take ExxonMobil, diversify your portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. But if you owned um, fractional shares of 100 great companies and you were able to simply live on the dividends, those dividends over time are going to be your best inflation hedge because those companies, assuming that they are well run, those companies are going to be looking for new markets. They're going to be hiring, firing, buying, selling. They're going to be dealing in the economy and they're dealing with with the effect of the economy. And as an owner, I'm gaining the dividends from that. However, they're going to, those dividends are not always going to – they're going to lag. Some of the companies are going to come in. Some of the companies are going to go out. But for me, the ultimate is just simply to be able to live off the dividends from the companies that I own. And that's the same thing that we do when we are working in private business that we own or it's the same thing we do when we're investing in publicly traded stocks. The major value of gold is for those times when things are changing. And so not in a – so, you know. The reason I want to have a, a good portfolio of, of gold coins I can put my hand on is, number one, uh, something funky happens and I got to get on a plane for Columbia. Uh, you need to be able to put your hands on some on some money. I think everybody should have some some walking around gold ready that they can put their hands on. The crazy stuff has happened. I did, the, the biggest example I mentioned several times on the show is that dentist. You know, um, The dentist, now that wasn't bad because it was, it was just – the media publicity, the guy who killed the lion, but the, it was just media publicity. But all of a sudden, his uh, you know his whole business falls apart. Now, in that situation, there's no need for gold coins. You just need cash in the bank and and money to to, to transition to. But at, the, at some point, you got to be able to put your hands on on some money. The other thing is just recognizing that every Federal Reserve, uh, every um, 
the Federal Reserve Bank here in the United States and every national bank uh, around the world, they own gold. And so there is a stability there of that asset based upon this, the intrinsic characteristics of the fact that that's what, that's what the major um, banks of the world hold and own. So that could give you some stability. And then if you're looking at the economic environment around you, the question for those who own gold that I would challenge you is at what point in time are you going to sell? Uh, and there should be almost no asset. There should be no asset that we are allied to where we say, this is the asset I'm going to own and I'm never going to sell. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a realist piece of real estate, whether it's a gold coin, or whether it is you know your, your business. Everything should have a price tag and you should understand, here's the point at which I'm going to sell. Because if, if, the, if you see a mispricing in the market, uh, you see some things happening with the currency system or whatnot. Now it's time to sell your gold coins and move back into other in uh, other investments. Uh, that's the opportunity I see is as gold, understanding its characteristics, understanding the value that it gives you, and then understanding when you can go ahead and sell it and move into other asset classes. Yeah, and I think the tricky part with with doing that would be trying to value the gold, trying to put a number on on that. When am I going to sell it? Um, and you know, if, if you're saying, well, I'm going to sell it at, uh, $2,000 an ounce. And the problem is if, if gold rises to that, we're probably in some economic times where the dollar's fallen and we're having inflation. And, and do you hit that point and you say, well, no, I'm going to hold it a little long and I'm going to hold it a little longer. And then it, and then it falls. And I mean, it, gold doesn't have an sort of value in terms of its productivity. You can't look at it like you do a business and say, this is how much revenues it had and this was its net profit. And, and, um, and so putting that value on it can be difficult. Um, which is why I think just a flat percentage is, is the best and easiest way to go is, is to say, I want to have uh, 5% or 10% of my portfolio in gold and as it, and, and, and use it for rebalancing purposes, essentially. Yeah, but then uh, that that's that's good as a general outline, and I like that as a general outline. But then at some point in time, it, you should know. I guess I just am convinced you should know when you're going to sell everything. Uh, and by that, I don't mean uh, I don't mean you know I got to sell everything, all of everything I own. But we've got to be instead of we've got to be. Do you educa- mean completely exiting a market? No, and, and yeah, I mean I mean paying attention to the relative value. So if you're looking at your portfolio, and in, in every biography I've read of people who get rich, uh, like really rich, mega ty- tycoons, things like that, what you'll often find is you'll often find them looking and seeing a mispricing in the market and going ahead and taking advantage of that based upon the assets that they have. Now, those assets are sometimes just hard work. Sometimes it's just seeing an opportunity and having the work to, to do it. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's selling a house and buying a business. Sometimes it's selling a business and buying a house. But that in our lives, we can't sit on the sideline and say, well, I'm just going to do nothing. Rather, we should be prepared to be watching the market. So we should understand what's going on. If you tell me that that there becomes a mispricing in the market where I can take some gold coins, uh, I, don't, I don't know, make up some crazy numbers. We end, we end up in mass inflation. And I'm looking around at my local real estate market. And I can buy a three-bedroom, two-bath house for uh, a dozen you know, one-ounce gold coins. 
well, I'm going to get rid of those coins and go buy the house because the coins have no worth whatsoever with regard to any utility function, whereas the house has a utility function. And if I look at a market and say, this housing price is, is very devalued, the price of this gold is high, I'm going to transition the, the gold asset into the real estate asset. Then as times change and I move forward a period of time, then I'm going to look down and I'm going to say, you know what, I think I'm going to go ahead and rebuild my, uh, my gold holdings. The prices, the, 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 the ratios have changed and now I'm going to go ahead and move into it. Like we, there's no reason to not have the approach of saying I'm going to buy and sell my assets as time goes forward. Now that that's only uncom- let me give you a reason. Mm-hmm. So I think all of that is phenomenal for a very sophisticated investor who um, can evaluate all of these different markets and move back and forth between them, trying to time them. I think. That's difficult for a lot of people, especially controlling the emotional aspect of it. And I think that as we get older, our mental faculties may decline. We may be more prone to, um, I don't know, paranoia. Like There's different factors that we deal with as we get older that may or may not be the case um, and, and certainly isn't for everyone, but there's still things you might have to deal with that I wouldn't be comfortable telling someone who's 70 to, okay, now's the time to sell your house because gold is really undervalued. Um, or, or, you know, and, or, or having them try and make that decision. So setting an asset allocation, making a, 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 a plan for here's what my investments are going to look like. And, um, gold is 10% of my portfolio. And, if you know, if a year from now gold has gone up ten times in price, and now I can use a little bit of it to buy that house, like you know your example of now, wow, I can use a couple gold coins and buy a house um, because this gold didn't produce anything. Well, what it produced was that inflation head, that right. that diversification in an uncorrelated asset, so that wow, now it's worth a bunch more. That gave me a bunch more money. I'm going to sell off. Now gold is 50% of my portfolio because it shot up so much. I'm going to sell off 40% of that gold. So now I'm back down to just 10% still and invest that in my other assets that are lower, which may include a a REIT that does own that house down the street. And so I I think in an ideal scenario, a very intelligent – sophisticated investor who knows all those markets might be able to do what you're describing. I think for most people, a much more simple, here's my asset allocation and I'm going to stick with that and and use rebalancing in order to do what you're describing. So I don't have to worry about which market is overvalued, which market is undervalued. I know, hey, gold has gone up a bunch. It's a higher percentage than it should be in my portfolio. I'm going to sell some of it and buy this one that's lower um, because that's, you know, I'm just rebalancing my allocation. You make good points and I'll accept most of them. Um, but I will, I will just simply respond and say why I'm, I'm, I'm making the, the point that I'm making. So I come from the formal financial advisor world. And if I were a formal financial advisor still, then I would have to give that answer. Okay. The rules in the financial advisor world is that we assume our clients are ignorant and we have to protect them from themselves. And that's the reality is most people are ignorant and we have to protect them from them from themselves. I would ne- actually – I would never feel comfortable personally uh, in a one-on-one situation – never is a strong word. It's hard for me to imagine the – 
scenario in which I would feel comfortable personally telling somebody the bet to make. You know, hey, look, you should sell your house and buy this investment asset, or you should sell this investment asset and you should buy the house. Uh, because that's going to affect their life. And I'm not sure if they're willing, they're ready with the pros and cons. But I'll tell you this for me. After years of studying mainstream finance and after years of being a mainstream financial advisor, I'm done with the crap that the mainstream financial advice world puts out. Now, if I'm running a pension portfolio for 40,000 retired school teachers, then I'm going to follow traditional asset allocation rules. I'm going to stick to that with safety. And my reason is twofold. Number one, it's probably the best move for me to protect those pensioners' income, but it's also going to cover my butt, which is what all of the investment managers have to do. You cannot go too far out of the mainstream. So if everyone goes down together, but we all follow the mainstream approach, well, at least we're all protected. So you've got to, I've got, I sort through all the advice and say, okay, how much of this is actually true and how much of this is good planning versus how much of this is just simply somebody protecting their butt. As a financial advisor, you cannot make interesting uh, recommendations and interesting analyses. But what I started to look at is I said, what do the rich people actually do? And what I realized is that the rich people actually, the people who live high lifestyles, whether they have a million dollars in the bank or whether they just live a really great lifestyle, they're always buying and selling based upon the value in, the, in their local markets. And this is the fundamental function that's been lost in today's world's approach to investing. So I would rather my 18-year-old son, uh, I would rather he not put any money in the stock market and I would rather he learn to buy and sell lawnmowers in the fall and snowblowers and you know, and he buys lawnmowers in the fall and sells them in the spring and buys uh, snowblowers in the spring and sells them in the fall and learn to judge the value of assets and then buy and then buy and trade them. And when I look at about it, yes, there is a level of sophistication where if you're running a large fund and you're getting paid, you need to be very sophisticated to understand the the, the values of large markets. But I don't think the average person, if they pay attention, they're a listener to this show. Uh, if they pay attention, they don't you don't have to be that sophisticated to get a sensing in your local market of, you know what, things are a little bit out of whack. If you're you know. If your taxi driver is telling you about their real estate rental houses, it might be time to sell and sit back and stick your money in cash and sit back and wait for some deals again. So I guess it's 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 a challenge for me to work through and say, what is the approach? And here in in this context, I'm talking about like you and me as individuals, as individuals who are desiring to live a a, a, a free lifestyle, then we're going to get far farther by paying a little bit of attention to education, paying attention to the markets, and then dealing with the opportunities that we have than we are by taking a mainstream uh, approach. What say you? Um, <laughs> I... I really do, by the way, I, I, I really do struggle with these things, which is why we're just kind of having a conversation. Feel free to disagree, but like, I, I struggle how to articulate this because I look around and I see the, the stuff that people preach is not the stuff that works. And so what I try to do on the show is I try to give the academic background, but the reality is the people, many of the people who develop the academic background are broke. And look at what the rich people do. Look at what the, the people who – look at what the rich people do and do what they do, not what the people who are teaching about finance teach people to do with their money. Okay. Um, and that makes sense. And for uh, an 18-year-old son who's going to be – uh, starting a career, some sort of active business entrepreneurship will probably make him a lot more than 
just passive investing in the stock market. Um, and, and, and that's one reason why my wife and I were able to retire so early is active real estate investing. I, you know, I, I read dozens and dozens of books. I went to real estate meetings and, and, uh, different training sessions. And, you know, after school I would be, you know, looking at rental properties and, and it was fun for me. I enjoyed it, but it was also extra work, but it made us a lot higher return than I would have netted otherwise. Um, so I, I, I'm in a hundred percent agreement that, that that is valuable and that that's a good way to get rich. The part where I disagree is when I'm thinking of the typical early retiree who, um, you know, however early they are retired or, or whether they retired at a regular age, whether in their thirties, forties, fifties or older, um, and they're thinking about inflation, I don't necessarily think that just saying, well, deal with, you know, just just have your money in assets that are low and then when they get high, shift it over to other assets. I think I, – I just don't think a lot of people do have that proclivity or necessarily even want to. They don't want I to agree. buy snowblowers and they don't want – so a, a more passive portfolio designed to their risk tolerance and – um, with all these different things in mind, thinking about inflation and how they're going to feel with um, with uh, different risks of how are they going to feel if the market falls 30% tomorrow, that sort of thing, um, is going to provide them a, a more stable base than trying to say, well, you know, here's a more optimal way if you know what you're doing, good luck. I, I- Absolutely agree with you, and and you make good points, which is why it's so challenging in the course of conversation to get the nuances, uh, the nuances out. Uh, I, I agree with you, uh, but we should always be paying attention to the relative value. And so, if you were looking at your, you're traveling in Chiang Mai, Thailand, or you're traveling in Croatia, and let's say you've been there for a year, and you're looking around and you're looking at what the rental prices look are, are working at, and you're looking at some of the resorts in the local area, and all of a sudden you find out that real estate prices in the United States uh, have just massively increased in a very short period of time, and you start to get the sense that, man, there's a little bit of a, it feels like a bubble, and you're looking at wages. Is there any, is there anything that's really causing demand to go up uh, uh, that's really solid on my rental properties? You would start to think about saying, I've got these values, some of these deals over here that, uh, some of these deals over here that are much more valued, and I can buy land and, and develop it, and you're researching that, and I've got this overvalued property in the United States, you'd probably start selling a few units and transitioning to something else. And so it's definitely not all or nothing. But I know for me, I wouldn't, as an early retiree, who knows, maybe when I get there, then I'll, I'll be able to say, but it's hard for me to think that you'd be all in on anything. Um, you're not all in on real estate. You're not all in on stocks. You're not all in on gold. It is a balanced, diversified approach, but you are paying attention, I guess, to your portfolio and looking for deals. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think that's where proper planning comes in. Um, but, but you're right. I, I, it's, it's definitely a balance and a mix of, of different things to both grow your portfolio, protect against different potential downsides and, um, and just tailor to what your experiences and interests have made you more knowledgeable of. I'm, I may be able to evaluate certain types of real estate, but 
I would have no clue what I'm doing if it came to investing in commodities as an inflation hedge. Agreed. I would just, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think it, it, it is, it's, it's very individual. It is, it is hard to generalize. Right. And that's where one of my convictions is that we should be teaching people to invest in the things that they know. And so, what happens what has happened is the financial advice industry has hijacked the word invest from people and investing has become about putting money in your 401k and constantly i'm talking with people just in my personal life or even in a professional life who are investing in through their 401k they're investing in mutual funds and they don't even have the slightest concept of what those things are and how they work well, that's how you get taken advantage of is if you don't have a concept of what they are and how they work. They're excellent tools. And it's hard for me to beat, uh, you know, if you can earn a couple hundred thousand dollars a year doing a job that is important to you and you can just stuff money aside in the 401k, buy low cost funds. It's hard to beat that from uh, a simplicity and an efficiency standpoint uh, of an investing perspective uh, because the investments are, are taking care of your life. But that's not the right for everybody and what other people should be doing is investing in what they know. And when I look at people, I mean I have some experiences even just in the last couple of weeks where I know some people who are very, very rich but you would never know it. It comes down to their skill of buying and selling the things that they need uh, and providing for themselves uh, with with good deals. Now you can't invest $100,000 in snowblowers but you can teach your kid how to invest $100 in snowblowers, how to flip that and then when they get to the $100,000 that's all they do and so when you know Warren Buffett, to pick on him, Mr. the guy who always gets picked on, when he's paying a billion dollars for you know a, for a percentage of a company, that's he's doing the same thing. He's trying to figure out how to allocate the capital in a market that is that is strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Well, I don't know if we I don't know the, if we beat the, the dead horse thing, or if it was interesting. Go ahead. The one caveat I do want to add though is you you are mentioning you're talking about how to get very wealthy. The, and you keep saying the very rich people and I personally and, and, and quite a few people who are kind of in the early retirement different communities online are very big into the concept of enough. We, we don't want to get super rich. We want to have enough to live comfortably and um, hedge against potential downsides and then spend our all of our time doing the things that we enjoy and that may make money or it may not. We don't care, but it's – we're not interested in in uh, in having tens of millions or more, you know, hundreds of millions. So, so it, go ahead. So, but if that's the case, I'm, I, you know, I think if if you wanted to be very rich, like right now, if I needed to make, um, you know, twenty million dollars in the next five or ten years, um, and, and I wanted to become very rich relatively quickly. Um, I would go read a book called The Millionaire Fastlane by uh, MJ DeMarco. MJ DeMarco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have you read that book? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I, uh, the, the title's gimmicky for anyone listening. You know, The Millionaire Fastlane sounds so gimmicky, um, but it's a phenomenal book in terms of it's, it's just all about here's how you build a business that provides value. His general thesis is like the more people you impact – the more money you can make, or if you impact less people, 
impacting them to a greater degree. So, but it's all about the impact you make on people's lives. Then you can make a lot of money. And so he talks about how to build a business to do that and and gives, it's just filled with solid tips. I would go, I've, I've read it. I would go basically reread that two times in a row, spend the next two days, just like reading it twice through and then implement everything in that book. And I think that's the best way to actually get really, really rich. And, you know, this is obviously just my personal opinion. Um, but is is building a company and and um, it, it, investing is a way to get rich slowly over time, but it's a lot more probable. It's a lot more secured and likely. If you're steadily investing in a passive index fund for twenty years, um, you're you're going to do pretty well, right? But you may not be massively rich at the end, right? So I I, um, I, I hope you don't feel like I'm just arguing with you hopefully listeners will just like this back and forth as far as oh i i I love debating so i I don't (laughs) mind at all good so it's up to them to listen or not but i'll tell you so (laughs) i don't actually care it's not i don't make the differentiation you made about becoming really really rich uh i also come from the perspective of what is enough uh so with my personal plan, I don't ever intend to live a lifestyle uh, that is massive because I've got much more important things to do with the money than just simply to turn it into personal lifestyle. So whether it's $20 million or $30 million, to me, that, that, that doesn't matter. And I think that, that it's mostly irrelevant to most people who are focusing on um, – who are focusing on uh, the details of, of their financial lives, of how to actually go through and make make uh, make it happen. The key thing that I am focusing on is just simply how do you build a plan that's going to work for you uh, in your specific situation? And the likely way that you're going to do that is by focusing on the minimum level that you need to cover your lifestyle. So that might be as simple as three rental properties. If you need $3,000 a month and you own three rental houses, which in net, given you know allowances for vacancies and repairs, net you $1,000 a month each, you're now financially independent. And so I would focus first on developing that. And if that were my plan, if I needed $3,000 a month, I would focus everything on getting those three rental properties. And I would not buy gold coins. I would not buy any of those other things. I wouldn't just, um, I wouldn't do that. Uh, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on that. I'd focus first on the rental properties. But then as you have the rental properties, if you continue to have excess, which you will, you'll start to have continued excess. Now, how do I diversify that? And that's when you start to push, um, you start to adjust your portfolio. And so I'm always interested in levering up. I wouldn't risk it all. Once you've built a certain lifestyle for yourself, I wouldn't want to risk it all. But I would want to focus on, I guess, looking for the opportunities that are there. Uh, because we should be working to make our portfolios as productive as possible uh, as we go through. So it's not a matter for me of $10 million or not. Uh, it's just a matter of how to approach it. And we approach it within the context of goals. What are our initial major focuses? Uh, you know, If gold, gold coins are not going to help you be an early retiree until you've got the money, you need an income plan. And so once you've built that income plan, now for some level of, of security or some level of defense, then gold coins might help you with your portfolio. Yeah. And I love all of that for you and for the investor who's interested in that. But for someone who's, let's say they've worked as a, uh, I don't know, a nurse or a computer program or whatever, somebody who's just 
invested in their 401k and they've they've had a super high savings rate they've they've saved 50 60 70 percent of their income and just dumped it into passive index funds whatever and and they're going to be relying on the four percent rule i think their plan's just fine i i think that i think that the the interested active investor who gets those rental properties as their kind of their base and then they start diversifying out from that and then they're i mean and so i i'm not putting down that plan because that's exactly what I did. We got a bunch of rental properties. I'm very overweighted in real estate and our additional income right now is going into diversifying into more other assets. So what you described is literally exactly what I'm doing. So I'm not knocking that at all. I'm, I'm a big fan of it, but I'm also know that I'm different than a lot of people. And you and I are both different than maybe uh, a lot of people who who would love to retire early. I see people come on, but they don't have a clue about investing. They don't, and they have no interest. They will learn it because they feel like they have to. But um, once they're retired, they don't want to think about money. They want to, you know, get those dividend checks every month, and and I'm done. I don't want to look at what what is the um, you know S and P at, and and what's the current you know price to earnings ratio. On they they don't have no interest in that. And so, um, I think it, it, it comes down to the individual that, that if we were designing a plan for, for you or for me versus a plan for my sister, they'd look very different. Agreed. Now here's my, here's my gut, my, my question. Uh-huh. Do you know anybody, and I'm not talking about somebody new who's come onto the boards, um, onto the discussion forums and said, hey, I just started reading Money Mustache and now two weeks later I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this early retirement thing and I'm going to retire in two years. Okay, I'm not talking about a new person. Somebody who's actually worked their way through, built financial independence, and has actually followed through and pulled out of the workforce in order to live a financially independent lifestyle or who's at that point. Do you know anybody who has done that, who, who, who doesn't also take – at least a serious interest in their money. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you're defining a serious interest in their money. Most of them, to get to that point, you're going to need to at least take an interest in your spending, right? Because you will need to have be doing more than the you know save five to ten percent of your income thing. So they will probably have quite reduced expenses. They they will have an interest in their money, but not necessarily an interest in investing. So I don't. So I do not care personally. I don't care about the stock market. I find it utterly boring. Uh, as far as the, the it's the my least favorite thing to talk about. But I care about investing. I just don't care about um, figuring out what is the PE ratio of this stock that I'm watching. Um, so I I I can mis- I, I can empathize with that perspective. Um, what I look at is I just look at the fact that you cannot get rich and stay rich unless you are interested in your money. It's not going to happen. So a good starting point is going to be to say, okay, put money in your 401k, but then you got to say, let's pay attention to your 401k. Now, there are a bunch of plans that can work, but somebody's got to pay attention. They've got to read Jack Bogle's book and say, well, let's see, which funds from Vanguard are going to give me what I need? Oh, look, Jim Collins says I just needed this total stock market index fund. Okay, that makes sense to me. I'll buy this total stock market index fund and I'll live off of that. And they understand their plan. Then you'll look at someone who understands, says, oh, I read the portfolio approach. This makes sense to me. They understand their plan. But they've got to, people have to get focused and understand what they're actually go, going to do in order to make it. Uh, and so that, 
the more efficient they want to be and the faster they want to get there, the more they've got to pay attention. I just don't see any other option. Yeah. Okay. I I completely agree with that. Um, My point was the person who decides, hey, I like this balanced 60-40 equities bonds portfolio or, hey, I like the permanent portfolio or whatever they decide, sticking – choosing that asset allocation and and sticking with that while they're retired and and having it be completely passive may fit – a lot more with their proclivities of I'm not interested in investing. I had to at least learn the basics. I had to go read Jim Collins stock series and, and go, yeah, that makes sense. I buy, I buy that theory. That's that will work for me. I'm okay with the volatility and that's how I'm going to invest my money. They, they, you're right that they need to learn about it, make those initial decisions, consider the different options, that sort of stuff, but they may not enjoy it. And they may not want to continue doing that sort of activity in retirement. If they've decided this is the portfolio that works for me, it's quite passive. And that's one of the pros of it for me. That's why one of the main reasons, one of the main draws, then they won't necessarily be, you know, doing anything actively deciding, hey, this market's overvalued, that sort of thing. If they wanted to get really rich, yes, but I think, um, yeah, lots of people who kind of just go, okay, I, I've I've saved up for my job for the last twenty years. I'm I'm good. I've I've just been very frugal, and now I'm I'm done done working, and I just want a passive portfolio where I just collect my dividends every month, you know, or, or every quarter. I'm good. You know, I think that's quite common. Best thing for the people in that situation to do is going to be pile up your money, call Northern Trust or Bessemer Trust and say, here, I don't want to pay attention. I'll pay you to pay attention to my money for me. <laughs> I just um, want to live uh, in there's, retirement. There's some other good solutions too. I, I like the the target retirement date funds that right. Vanguard has. Right. Um, I think that's a, a fairly good solution. Um, I think uh, – let me plug one cool tool that Go for I just found out over the last few months uh, – just discovered, and I think it was only created a few months ago, but it's amazing. It's called uh, PortfolioCharts.com, mm-hmm. and um, it lets you put in different uh, asset allocations for all kinds of different – now, obviously, um, something like a rental property it can't cover or a business you're running yourself, but all sorts of – all the sort traditional kind of standard types of investments and a lot of some some non-standard ones too that, th- that he has data for, and look at how did those – returns happen versus the the volatility that they present and um it's just it's and then it just visualizes it and in just like the most beautiful ways makes these like charts and and um and it shows like what your uh safe withdrawal rate could be for these different potential portfolios and it shows you um uh, how long how, it shows you like how long would it have take you to work on average and with the standard deviation and then it shows it in a chart so it's pretty so you don't have to understand what standard deviation is um it shows you how long it would have taken to retire if you had a hundred percent equities portfolio uh, over you know you know 1979 or if you had um a hundred percent gold portfolio or, or a mix of those or you had this percent bonds or you can basically just put in whatever percent you want of all these different things and it'll show you how long would it have taken you to retire if you had that as your allocation how long would it you know what what sort of volatility would you have and and it's just it's just fun to go on there and play around if you are one of those people who are interested in this sort of stuff learning about this and then He's got a little blog on there where he posted, you know, some different like here's a potential um, 
allocation that's really interesting to look at. Or here's this new um, calculator. It's it's worth he he had a post uh, a month or two ago called the Golden Butterfly, which is kind of a, a tweak on the permanent portfolio um, that he made that that was just fascinating to me. Looking at this this asset allocation for this portfolio that I would have never considered. Um, so if if you are into that sort of stuff. It's a fun fun site to check out, uh, PortfolioCharts.com. Cool. I'll, uh, I'll try to link to it in the show notes. Uh, Any other resources or, or ideas that you think would be useful for people trying to um, solve, solve through this problem? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. The kind of circling back to – we kind of got a little off, off topic, but going back to inflation, um, there's a cool site called westegg.com slash inflation that has all the uh, inflation data from the year 1800 – up through last year, 2014, um, and you can put in a dollar amount and a starting and ending year, and it will tell you how much that amount would have been worth. So if you're like, well, my, my grandfather, you know, said his house was five thousand dollars in 1925. How much is that today? And or or um, I have this much today. What would that have been equivalent to back 30 years ago? You know, oh, my salary this year. So it's it's fun to play around with um, a cool inflation tool to to just see how it actually played out historically. Um, there's, uh, I, I think, thinking about early retire early retirees and inflation, um, it's important to go on and play with early retire with retirement calculators. And um, look at what does inflation change some of those inflation assumption rates and see what that does to your portfolio. And then also make sure you use ones that are not just like have you put in a fixed number guess, but do a Monte Carlo sim that will, you know, show a, a whole range of scenarios. And then also use a tool like C Fire Sim, um, the letter C and then F I R E S I M dot com. Um, to actually, which uses historical inflation um, when it's in, in historical interest rates, or not interest, uh, like market returns, to calculate how your portfolio would have done historically. So using actual real-world data, um, it's there's no easy like answer, but it's important to get a feel for what might it look like and playing around with those different scenarios uh, and getting comfortable with the idea and then coming up with different plans to to help uh, think about it. One, one thing you said earlier when you mentioned your thoughts on gold is you said that you would rather have those productive assets, um, those those businesses making money. And that's that's one of the best inflation hedges in my mind is is if you are investing in equities, if you have an index fund. I think a lot of retirees worry about a market crash, and so they don't want to put too much in stocks. And so they they have a high cash allocation, and they have a lot of fixed rate bonds. And the problem is that inflation just destroys that. And you can recover from a market crash. You can kind of wait it out, and the stocks will recover. But you're probably not going to get buying power back. We're probably not going to have deflation for decades that's going to re- uh, get you your buying power back. So um, I think it's yeah, it's important for an early retiree to look at that and and owning equities, having a high enough stock percentage, um, because when prices are going up, when if if food is going up, if gas is going up, if clothes are going up, but you own the companies that are selling that food and selling that gas and selling those clothes, 
you're getting more profits. Right. And, uh, and that's why it may be scary to go, oh, no, the, you know, the, the mar- stock market's tanked. Um, you know, as inflation happens in, in the stock markets, I need to sell. And, but keep in mind that those companies are still generating profits. They're, they're, um, they're selling those items that are now at an increased cost. And you as the owner of that company are, are earning those profits. And, um, even if the stock market drops, it, it eventually will correct. And I had a friend of mine who, uh, primarily earned their their income from uh, an oil a portfolio of oil wells uh, that uh, a family member had put together, and I just remember when gas was up at four bucks a gallon here in the states. I remember kind of just thinking about it. <laughs> I was uh, you know bemoaning it, and, and the person said to me, "Hey, it's great for me. I'm getting bigger checks than I've ever gotten <laughs> in my life." And so it's kind of a cool way to balance it. If you own some oil wells, uh, you or some oil stocks or whatever you're you know whatever way that you're investing in the oil market. If gas prices are low, you're not making a lot of money, but you can enjoy the low cost of traveling in your car. If gas prices are high, you can uh, hurt a little bit when you fill up your tank, but you can sit back and enjoy the nice big fat checks coming into your bank account. It's a good place to be. Absolutely. And I think there are, there are specific strategies I've heard of where people will buy stock in their local electric company and buy stock in their local natural gas company. And, and, and the the utility companies that they pay money to every month, well, if those utility costs rise, theoretically, so should the, the, the price of those stocks or at least the dividends and the, the amount of profit that um, those companies are making, the, the revenues. And so um, the, that's definitely another kind of fun mental hedge too for inflation is like, oh, my electricity went up per kilowatt, but hey, I'm, I'm at least paying some of it to myself. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm in. I I agree. I guess I, I think it's been a good conversation. Sorry, before I wrap up, anything else, Joe? Um, no, I I, I think we covered uh, quite a bit. It's it's definitely um, an interesting topic. I think there's a lot of resources online. If you uh, the financial mentor Todd Tresseter that I mentioned earlier, he's written a fair amount about inflation for retirees. So Google financial mentor inflation and and that'll give you some more articles to read if you're interested in the topic um because it's it's a a fascinating one for me just thinking about um how 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 money works i mean and 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 how the value of it just really changes over time the the challenge of these types of conversations and i think it's been a good a good conversation a good introduction but the challenge that has emerged is the question of speaking in broad generalities versus specific application and this is always the problem and so what what we've done is many people talk about inflation from the perspective of the large-scale economy uh, in general, and that's what the CPI is measuring. Well, you can home in a little bit more to the, the inflation in your town or in your state or in your industry or things like that. When you start to dig into financial strategies for – you can go with financial strategies for the mainstream, then financial for strategies for the early retirees. But the true power is going to be to hone in on your situation. And so that's what's emerged even in the conversation. You can hear Joe's perspective and my perspective of our situation. Uh, and frankly, Joe, like it's very difficult for me – to bring together the concept that is prominent in early retiree scenarios, the idea that, uh, well, you know, we're going to 
retire at 30 on a portfolio of passive index funds because I can't find, with the exception of Doug Nordman, I can't find anybody who's actually followed through and retired at 30 and, and done it for 40 or 50, excuse me, and lived for 70 years on their portfolio. Maybe Joe, Doug Nordman and Joe Dominguez. Um, that's about it. And I'm sure there are a couple out there, but I think it's a well, little unrealistic to say that this is going to be the approach. Rather, that's why I bring in things like business. That's why I bring in these other things and say, this is a much more expansive, inclusive um, opportunity. And this is what people are actually doing is they're actually at some point in time, you're going to, you're still going to be buying and selling real estate. At some point in time, you're going to find some little thing that you care about, whether it's running a canoe um, outfitter, you know, operation in Chiang Mai, Thailand or, or, or something. And you're going to be back in business and then you're going to be filtering that in and then you're going to sell that business because you get a good deal on it. Like this is the way that that the world works. It's not this, this approach to passive portfolio perfection. Yeah, I, I agree um, that you may make more money doing those sort of passions, but not necessarily doing it for the money. Right. So you, your, your main base may still just be the passive portfolio and you're doing the, the hobby income for fun. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I I agree that there's very few. I think I think the problem is it's it's a uh, a selection bias, right. a, a sample bias in that most of the people who do get there to that early retirement are because they are interested in that and become interested, and so um, it's it's if someone's not interested in their money, it's 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 rare or, or not interested in investing, it's a lot more difficult for them. To, to, to achieve that. And, and I wouldn't even necessarily count Nords in there because he's got the military pension. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I think Paul and Vicky Terhorst, um, I think there's, there's, there's some out there and, and I think there's more that are more than we know about that don't necessarily blog that because they're not interested in talking about financial topics because they're not that interested in it. But, right. um, I, I definitely have seen, uh, you know, people post questions like, is there anybody out there who just kind of, who actually, takes built up a big passive portfolio takes four percent a year and and does and and there are people that are like yeah yeah i do that um and then there are other ones who who get into angel fund investing and who you know who do all kinds of other stuff and and uh so it's definitely there there's a range but but you're right in that that most most of us seem to be more active and, and interested in our investments and and i think that's a great thing yeah what you focus on, um, that's where your energy goes. And when you focus on your money, then uh, it can start to grow. So, Joe, thanks for coming on. Uh, is there anywhere – are you like blogging or posting anywhere about your trip? Anywhere can, uh, people can check out even just any personal stuff that you're sharing? Um, not yet. My we, We've talked about starting a blog. My wife has actually written about a dozen blog posts um, for it. But my, my computer died um, a couple weeks ago and um, – I it's a it's a MacBook and I have Apple Care, but apparently there is no Apple stores in Split Croatia, and so um, that it's Apple Care is not helpful when there's no Apple stores. So we did just we got to Zagreb a couple of days ago and and dropped it off at the store and and it's getting diagnosed. So one of my people keep asking us about a blog, family members and and friends who want to keep up with our travels and and. Um, We'll probably eventually start something. So maybe maybe next time we chat, I'll I'll be able to answer that better. Well, at least just do Instagram or something. I'd enjoy seeing pictures of the trip. Um, and super simple. Um, Instagram would be a, a simple way to share something. That's a good idea. I, I I don't have one of those yet, but 
I will I will think about that. That's yeah, a good we'll, idea. We'll talk more offline, but Instagram is the Instagram is the way to go. So all right, Joe, thanks for coming on the show. And uh we'll maybe another year we'll be back in who knows what corner of the world you'll be in at that point. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Joshua. As you build wealth, develop wealth, and work on your plan, you must take responsibility to control the risks of your plan. Every financial plan has risks. Every stage of life has different risks. When you are an employee, inflation poses a certain risk. But it's not nearly so difficult to manage inflation as an employee or business owner as it is if you are living on your nest egg. None of us know what the future holds, uh, but you had better have a plan for your money. So I hope the conversation today has perhaps given you some ideas. Uh, I'm sure we didn't provide any real answers or specific advice, but hopefully at least it gave you the encouragement and motivation to go back and consider your plan and make sure that you have plans to handle the risks that face you and your money. Uh, Remember, step four of the uh, Radical Personal Finance Framework for Wealth is avoid catastrophe. And that means from time to time, you need to put on, uh, take off the rose-tinted glasses and put on the dark and gloomy Eeyore glasses. Look at your situation and ask yourself, what are all the bad things that could happen? From the mild to the wild, ask yourself the question, what would you do? Now, what's going to happen? I don't know. Um, Neither does anybody else. We all have ideas about it. So my personal approach is just simply to recognize that I don't know and do my best to plan for all eventualities and give myself as many options as possible. Can't always do that perfectly, but a lot of times you can do it. And I encourage you to uh, stress test yourself. Ask yourself what you would do uh, when facing inflation, mass inflation, hyperinflation. Ask yourself what you would do. And how would that affect your wealth? Thank you for listening to today's show. If this content has been valuable to you and you would like to support me directly in the work that I do to provide you great value as consistently and as regularly as I'm able to, please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. That is a direct crowdfunding site where you can sign up to directly support the show. Uh, as little as a buck a month. Uh, uh, makes a difference as much as you know three bucks a month five bucks a month uh 10 15 20 25 hundreds it's up to you but just if you find value in this and you'd like to pay me for the work that i do uh, i would greatly appreciate you're going to radicalpersonalfinance.com slash patron and sign up to support the show directly back with you soon